This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Perhaps the most troubling aspect of the global COVID-19 epidemic is that it could have been prevented. Although scientists had long warned of the inevitability of a coronavirus epidemic, now estimated to have cost more than $9 trillion, a vaccine was never developed. With the wisdom of hindsight, surely the public health community would have prepared better. A far larger threat and opportunity to global health is emerging. Antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, could make COVID-19 seem like a dress rehearsal. In the US alone, AMR affects nearly 2 million people at a cost of $20 billion and 23,000 lives annually. If unchecked, it's forecast that the problem could claim 10 million lives per year worldwide and be responsible for the loss of 100 trillion in economic output by 2050. These truly staggering estimates beg the question, can we learn from the cost of our inaction with coronavirus and mobilize the necessary resources to prevent future devastation from AMR? Here to address these questions is Gunnar Esiason, an emerging public health spokesman and rare disease patient leader. In addition to being a researcher and master student of healthcare and business at Dartmouth College and a board member of the Boomer Esiason Foundation, Gunnar is a passionate advocate for placing patients at the center of disease research and treatment. Gunnar recently released a Pioneer Institute white paper entitled Antimicrobial Resistance, Learning from the Current Healthcare Crisis to Prevent Another One. His piece carefully outlines the dangers of AMR and the attending market failures that frustrate solutions. The paper explores policy alternatives and suggests paths to help stave off disaster. As a cystic fibrosis patient himself, Gunnar's research and policy advice on the dangers of infection are imbued with the authentic urgency of first-hand experience. My co-host today on Hubwonk is Bill Smith, visiting healthcare fellow in life sciences at Pioneer Institute. Bill has a deep understanding of the risks presented by drug-resistant microbes and the complexity of market distortions engendered by the current U.S. healthcare system. Welcome back to the show, Bill. Thank you, Joe. Glad to be here. Bill, I read the research paper from Gunner uh, as real as the danger of antimicrobial resistance or AMR is, there's a sense of optimism about ways to combat it based on the lessons learned uh, from our global pandemic, from uh, COVID-19. What was your impression of the piece and what would you like to ask Gunner? Well, it's a very well-informed piece uh, and uh, it, it lays out the challenges of AMR. And, you know, it's, it's a business model challenge for many pharmaceutical companies because a, a course of antibiotics might last 10 days as opposed to an arthritis drug where people might be on it for a lifetime. So the revenue one can secure from a, an antibiotic but provides disincentives to, from doing the research. Plus, there's a lot of very old antibiotics on the market that are very cheap generics so a new entrant that comes in with a branded price is, is very difficult. Uh, but this creates a dangerous situation because bacteria is constantly evolving and mutating and you gotta keep up with the research to address the, the latest strains of bacteria and there's concern that that's not happening and that, that's what the paper's about. 
Uh, and and Gunner is a very very passionate advocate. Uh, he's a patient with uh, uh, living with cystic fibrosis. He is concerned about having antibiotics, so he's coming from the perspective where it's very personal to him, and he wants to solve this problem and make people aware of it. Yes, of course, it's excellent academic research. But for for Gunners and others like him, and anyone who's uh, encountered an infection, this is uh, real world and uh, important to his life and, and the rest of our lives. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. So when we return, we'll be joined by Gunnar Esiason. Okay, welcome back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi with Bill Smith of Pioneer Institute. We're now joined by Gunnar Esiason uh, from Pioneer as well. Welcome to the show, Gunnar. Thanks, Joe. Uh, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me on, guys. Sure. Well, I, I want to get to the main points of your Pioneer Institute policy brief, but first I'd like to acknowledge your own extraordinary experience as a public voice for cystic fibrosis. You and your father worked tirelessly to support those affected with the disease, and, and therefore this, uh, this paper is something that um, is very near and dear to your own personal life. Uh, tell us more about your, your background and your experience. Yeah, so um, I'm... Gunnar Steisen, actually living with cystic fibrosis. Uh, I was diagnosed with a genetic condition in 1993. Uh, my dad at the time was in the middle of his NFL career playing with the New York Jets. Um, and back then, he and my mother, they started the Boomer Size Foundation. And since then, we've raised close to $200 million in the fight against cystic fibrosis. And much of that has gone towards uh, you know, the basic science, the basic research that goes into CF. Uh, of course, some drug development, but really what we're, we're interested in is making sure that patients uh, are in a position to you know, have financial success, to be able to access their medications, to have to the clinics they go to or have the, uh, the resources to treat the patients. Um, and, and of course, we also provide scholarships and transplant grants um, for people who are uh, dealing with uh, you know, the end stage part of cystic fibrosis or who even want to go to, to, to college or, or to get a master's degree or, or whatever. So I think um, one of the things that we really pride ourselves on at the Boomer Science Foundation is that we put our, uh, we, we really put our name out there uh, to make sure that patients have what they need to succeed in life. Uh, and for your listeners who may not know what cystic fibrosis is, it's a genetic condition um, that basically uh, manifests in severe respiratory disease. Uh, unfortunately, I've dealt with that for, for mu much of my life, um, but uh, recently we've, we've actually had a number of drug breakthroughs that have made the condition very much livable. Uh, so we're, we're actually going through a, quite the transformation right now in the, uh, the CF community. That's very inspiring. Um, among the many challenges for those with CF, uh, are the risk of infections. And I think that brings us to the topic today, your paper on uh, AMR, uh, antimicrobial resistance. Um, for our listeners who are encountering this uh, for the first time, uh, you did a great job describing uh, uh, CF. Uh, tell us more about what is antimicrobial resistance or AMR. Right, so <clears throat> AMR is a broad umbrella term uh, for any sort of microbial infection that people may deal with, whether it's a, a virus or a bacteria or, or anything like that. Uh, the focus of my paper was really antibiotic resistance. So um, when people uh, you know, have any sort of bacterial infection, whether it's a skin infection or me, I have respiratory, chronic respiratory infection, uh, we're treating folks with antibiotics. And over time, uh, that bacteria evolves to become impervious to those antibiotics that are used, uh, which is why we have a full suite of antibiotics, really. You know, there's many different classes, many different types. Um, and, and, and over time, uh, the bacteria evolves to become stronger and stronger and resists uh, the antibiotic exposure uh, to the point where uh, we're no longer able to treat 
the bacterial infection because the, the bacteria just essentially grows too strong and is able to fight back again. And the drug's no longer effective. Correct. So once the uh, the resistant strain, you know, the 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 part of the bacteria that that does evolve, um, becomes the dominant part of the infection, it does spread and then sort of overwhelms the the infection. So I'll use myself as an example here. I'm living with drug resistant Pseudomonas aeruginosa in my lungs. I've had it since uh, you know I was eight or nine years old, and over year, you know over twenty plus years, we've been exposing that bacteria to to courses and courses of antibiotics to the point where in my own life, I'm now able to use fewer and fewer different drug options to treat that pseudomonas originosa that lives deep inside my lungs. And that's just one example. Um, you know, there, there are, there are uh, countless, you know, bacteria, bacterial species as, as well. There are, you know, many, many different antibiotics. Um, and this is a really a, a passionate issue for me because yes, while it is specific to my, you know, life with cystic fibrosis, you know, antimicrobial resistance is not specific to the rare disease world. You know, most people uh, know somebody in their lives who have, you know, had to use extended courses of antibiotics. Uh, another example is someone who is uh, undergoing chemotherapy for, you know, for cancer treatment, uh, wipes out the immune system and very easy for them to have a hospital acquired infection while they're you know, going through uh, you know, surgeries or um, are just sort of uh, exposed to those bugs really in, in the hospital. So, uh, it's, it's not a, a localized issue to CF, but really it's something that is going on. And the CDC has quite a bit of data on it. Uh, there are thousands of Americans each year are exposed to these antibiotic resistant bugs, uh, and that really just are becoming more and more difficult to treat and more and more prevalent in the population as well. Well, well I'll quote your own paper and say 2,300 Americans lose their lives each year to, uh, AMR, right? Yeah. So, uh, that's not small. Bill, would you like to? What would you like to ask Gunnar? Yeah, I want to. I want to ask Gunnar about. Uh, we have such a robust, as he knows better than anybody. We have a robust biopharmaceutical industry. Um, what are the disincentives for them to keeping up with these evolving and mutating um, uh, bacteria? Um, why can't Why can't the industry just get it way ahead of this? What are the disincentives for them to getting ahead of it? So you're really kind of just leading to really the huge problem here is that the biopharmaceutical injury is very much leaving the antibiotic space for a few reasons. Uh, one is they're just not a lucrative investment, right? It's uh, there, there are many different classes of antibiotics that are out there and that they still work for, for some people who, who develop infections over time. But it's, a, it's an interesting case study because the, we know that the existing drug suite that we do have will eventually be uh, become um, uh, you know uh, not uh, not effective, uh, and then the the other piece of it is is the way that our Medicare system specifically reimburses antibiotics prescribed in the hospital because of the uh, the diagnosis related grouping system that uh, that that Medicare reimburses under uh, when when a patient goes into the hospital and is prescribed an antibiotic the hospital receives a reimbursement. Uh, of equal amount, regardless of whether or not we're using a brand new uh, antibiotic that may have just come out or an older one that is uh, likely generic. So when that happens, the hospital faces a, an incentive to prescribe an older drug rather than a newer drug. So that is a problem for two reasons. Uh, the first is that the older drug, it probably already has some sort of resistance profile in the population, so it may not be nearly as effective. But second, the branded drug is not able to uh, you know, reap revenue for the drug drug developer who's putting it out there on the market. So when that happens, the the drug developer is unable to 
recoup the R&D expenditures that they have put forward to, to, um, to put the drug to market. Now, that said, CMS knows this is a problem. I, I think everyone knows this is a problem within the drug industry and, and uh, reimbursement landscape. And that's why CMS has tried to help, but they really do need some legislation to really revamp that reimbursement process for drugs that are prescribed inside the hospital. So one of the important points I think you make in the paper is that you do compare the enormous challenge of, uh, of uh, drug-resistant um, microbes to our current challenge with COVID-19. In other words, uh, I'll, I'll use a trite um, saying and say a pound of, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You compared the estimated uh, uh, cost of COVID at uh, $9 trillion globally, whereas the cost of a vaccine is $100 billion. Um, you see a similar uh, opportunity here to head off an enormous uh, problem. Can you say more about that comparison that you developed in your paper? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the um, the review on antimicrobial resistance headed by Jim O'Neill forecasts a cumulative $100 trillion of economic, of economic output lost by 2050 if this is unchecked. So in a very similar sense, you got to be able to pay upfront here to create this incentive for drug developers to get involved in this so that down the road does not spiral out of control, much like the coronavirus has. And, and you know, I, there is a canyon as wide as the Grand Canyon between viruses and bacteria. And, you know, that is not the comparison here. It's really a point about what an infectious disease or infectious pathogens can do if left unchecked. And, you know, we already know that infections in the United States alone already account for an excess of $20 billion uh, to the healthcare system. You know, we know that because we're unable to treat infections and people do have to utilize healthcare resources, utilize hospital space, utilize hospital beds, you know, the healthcare system is already being taxed beyond what it should if we were able to treat those infections. Um, so, Beyond the uh, incentives, and you described them, I think, very clearly for, uh, or disincentives for creating new uh, antibiotics, uh, the ones that are out there, uh, you did touch briefly on the fact that they aren't effectively managed, meaning there are antibiotics being issued for viruses, which is ineffective. They may be old or ineffective. In other words, lots of people get um, uh, unnecessary uh, antibiotics, uh, which merely accelerates the rate at which they become ineffective. Uh, is there are there protocols being developed, or are you advocating for protocols being developed uh, that can slow down the misuse or misapplication of antibiotics? You, you know, yeah, you, you ask a good question here, Joe, and I'll paint it with a, a brief picture. You know, I remember growing up, uh, and this is just you know my personal experience, and I, yeah, this is something that can certainly be generalized. But I remember growing up every time I had a sore throat, a stuffy nose, or something like that, I was just you know go to the pediatrician, and next thing you know, I'm on antibiotics for two weeks, whether or not I actually needed them. Right. And, and that experience is not, uh, you know, specific to me. You know, that happens to, to quite a few people. So what we are really trying to, to advocate for here is we want to be good stewards of antibiotics. We want to know when to use them, when not to use them. And most importantly, when it is time to use them, which one are we going to use? Right. Because every time you're going to use an antibiotic, and you're going to expose it to bacteria. That bacteria, one way or another, is going to develop some sort of resistance factor. So, which is why, you know, we do have uh, varying levels of efficacy within the antibiotic suite that we have all the way from, you know, front level antibiotics, you know, you think you go to Z-Pack or something like that, 
all the way to uh, a last line, you know, last sort of line of defense, which includes things like cholestins, polymyxins, and those drugs are really the things that need to be held into reserve and used in the last possible moment. You know, we don't want those things out there to be used on, uh, you know, an everyday, you know, you know, scrape that's when they get on the side of the road or even in agriculture, you know, we know that's also another problem too is we're treating, um, you know, our livestock and, and our agriculture with these antibiotics that are, that should be quote unquote, last lines of defense. Uh, and by doing so, we're, we're actually exposing that bacteria to, to, to some really heavy duty drugs that we need to keep in reserve for when the time comes. Um, in your paper, and again, you laid out the challenges, you talk about concepts of uh, given there's a, a sort of perverse market incentives for developing and, and marketing new antibiotics, uh, you talk about the push and the pull of, of the building of new antibiotics, the push being incentives to create them and the pull being once they're created, um, what we can do to reward uh, developers of those antibiotics. In other words, it has to be financially feasible for, uh, for this development. Describe for our listeners what you mean by push and what you mean by pull. So push and pull are, um, you know, it's, it's drug development jargon. Um, and, and the best way to describe it is, is really the words that are used to, 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 to define these two financing mechanisms. So push is, uh, the, the best way that I think about it, is how are we going to push a potential drug or a drug candidate or an experimental drug over the, the, the finish line to towards branded approval, and then importantly, sustainability. So push funding is um, is basically milestone incentives, uh, and, and in Boston is home to two really great examples of these push financing mechanisms. One is CARB-X, and the second is the AMR Action Fund. So CARB-X is a sort of public-private partnership um, whose mission is to accelerate a diverse portfolio of high quality antibacterial products towards clinical development. And they basically help, uh, you know, small cap biotech, small cap biopharmaceutical companies uh, with financing, cheap financing upfront and uh, logistical support to help these smaller companies get through the clinical trial process, give them scientific support, give them regulatory aid. They help them get through you know, the earliest parts of the drug development process. The AMR Action Fund is actually an interesting concept. It's all of these big pharma companies that have come together to create a $1 billion fund to help small biotechs in a very similar way. And the reason the big, the big pharma companies are doing it is because they know that they risk losing the efficacy of their own products if we can't get around this, this AMR issue. Uh, it's really an interesting thing. And, and maybe I'll let Bill speak on it from his experience in the industry. Uh, you know, if, if, if we're not able to treat the entire patient, then are we really going to reap the efficacy of a drug that, that we're putting out there? Yeah, really, what strikes me about this AMR problem, um, and and is that it's it's a bit of a political problem in the sense that every condition where you have very effective advocates to change policy, uh, they tend to be chronic conditions. You know, the American Cancer Society, people living with cancer for a long period of time, uh, CF is another good example where people, thanks to good medicines, they're around a long time and they're going to be very active in in getting. When it comes to infections, there's no, you know, society of people living with an infection that just doesn't exist. And it seems to me that that that's and, and if people get an infection, it's a condition that lasts a couple of weeks and they either 
beat it or they don't, and it's over uh, as as a as an issue. So it seems to me that there's a challenge to getting the policymakers' attention on that. So talk a little bit about what what is Washington doing. Now you, you referenced that they're aware, but there's got to be some legislation. There has to be some people that are active. But I do think it suffers from this one infirmity where there's not a real natural coalition of people to push things. Right. So, and, and, that, and that brings me to the next point of, of the poll funding. So I think most policymakers and most, uh, you know, most people in the field, most people in the, the AMR area recognize the need for poll fundings or quote unquote rewards uh, for, for successful drug development. And, and one that I advocated for in my paper was the DISARM Act. And what DISARM really does is that it, it actually carves out these highly innovative, these very much needed antimicrobials and pays and, and reimburses for them at a higher level. So it, it really directly attacks that financial disincentive inside the hospital that we spoke about a little while ago, where uh, hospitals uh, are, are incented to prescribe older generic branded drugs compared to these newer branded drugs um, on an on as needed basis. So what it does is it really helps the drug developers um, get rewarded for their R&D expenditures. Um, and, and that's the one that I think is is out there. It's, it's broadly bipartisan, but it does have some naysayers, right? You know, you're on the back end, you are increasing drug spending and, and you are uh, potentially incentivizing physicians or hospitals who are going to be reimbursed more to prescribe those branded drugs. And then you're starting a cycle all over again of, you know, creating resistance to brand new drugs. Um, and, and it's it's a tough situation because, you know, we do anticipate that every drug that we bring through the approval process just works for eternity or, you know, works for the lifetime that we need it to work for, but antibiotics, unfortunately, don't. Yeah, I was going to say that the good news is that these incentives, if they're structured the right way, work magically within the industry. I mean, the Orphan Drug Act, for example, was passed in 1983, and it was passed because pharma companies wanted to invent drugs that millions of patients could take because you want everyone wants millions of customers, not small numbers of customers. And the, the Orphan Drug Act provides all these incentives, R&D incentives, tax incentives, and others. And I, I, you know, I can report over the last couple of years, in 2018, 2019, there are now more orphan drugs approved each year than regular drugs. Uh, so these incentives can really accelerate uh, the R&D and business model uh, uh, in different therapeutic areas when they're applied correctly. Absolutely. And, and, and another, uh, you know, policy uh, intervention that, that was recently, very recently uh, proposed in Congress is the Pasteur Act, which is, which is modeled after the Orphan Drug Act. I don't, I'm, I'm not quite as familiar with it and it wasn't in, in my paper, but it's another, another intervention that is out there looming in the background uh, about how to really bolster these pull incentives for the, these drug developers, because, you know, the other thing with antibiotics is that uh, when, 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 a, when an antibiotic is approved, a brand new one, let's say a novel antibiotic is approved, a good steward of antibiotics, we talked about the stewards earlier, would just want to keep that drug on the shelf until it absolutely had to be used. You know, they don't want to expose that to a, you know, to a, to a patient who may not need it. And what that really does is that, that really, um, uh, is, is, an, is an economic externality that changes the X Right, the number of patients that a drug developer thinks they may be trying to treat in a given year. So um, it's, it's a hard, hard business for drug developers. Uh, it's a hard 
you know, a hard thing for reimbursements. It's a hard thing for, for, for hospitals to get around, but really it's uh, a shame for patients. And it's, it's a really life-threatening scenario for patients. And one of my dear friends, unfortunately, passed away about two years ago when the antibiotics stopped working for her, right? So this thing is going on. This is happening today. Uh, and the World Health Organization, the CDC, the AMR review, everyone knows that it's going to get worse. It's a, a matter of when do we stop it and how are we going to do it? Now, for our listeners who uh, just heard you say we need to spend more on these drugs, uh, what do you say to assuage their concerns that you know such programs are a you know giveaway to big big pharma? Um, you know, in other words, how, how does how do you take a very good idea and keep it from being twisted to uh, to other ends? So one thing I will say is that yeah, no no one wants to spend more than we have to on on pharmaceuticals or drugs. You know, I, I think that's a given. But we have to understand the value that it's providing to the healthcare system, right? It's it's paying up front to prevent a problem from getting worse. Uh, and when a problem does spiral out of control, we know that the majority of healthcare expenditures do come at the end of life, right? So if, if a drug is getting out, if, if an infection is getting out of hand and that person becomes a super utilizer of the healthcare system, those costs are going to go up one way or another. So that's one thing that I look at there. You know, it's, it's, it's really attacking the problem at its core and understanding it. But and Bill will tell you as well that uh, you know, drugs are patented for only a finite period of time before they do go generic and their costs do fall off a cliff for all intents and purposes. Bill, do you want to speak to uh, the idea that uh, a drug company needs to be able to, uh, of course, afford to develop a drug, then have, as, as Gunnar said, an X that's a large number, meaning a lot of people using it, and ultimately do that all before uh, it falls off uh, its patent and ultimately becomes free uh, or no longer profitable to produce. Um, can you say more about how drugs sort of square that circle? Well, as, as Gunnar explained, I mean, uh, patent life is limited. Uh, you get a 20-year patent for a pharmaceutical company the, the day you slap a patent on it, a molecule. So you discover a molecule in the lab, it looks good, Maybe you saw some research that happened in an academic medical center in this molecule. You really think it has promise. You slap a patent on it. And then on average, it takes about 13 years to go from slapping that patent on to actually having a product that's in the market. So you get about seven years of exclusivity. You, again, I don't think the prices are exactly related to what the R&D expenditures were. There's all sorts of other factors of you know how many people are employed at your company and what are the trends in your uh, in your uh, earnings and all sorts of things go into pricing decisions. R and D is one factor in it, but in within that seven year period, you've got to essentially uh, earn the money that you need. Um, and then, as Gunnar said, the the, the prices drop ninety nine percent when most drugs, especially small molecule drugs, go generic. And that's the case with antibiotics. They cost pennies. Um, they're the old antibiotics cost less than aspirin. Um, so you can't make any money once the patent goes off. So you have to make sure that you're going to be able to ensure a certain amount of sales within that seven years. And for antibiotics, that's a challenge, right? You know, people don't people take them for a limited period. As Gunnar said, if you invent a real highly potent antibiotic. They want to keep it on the shelf until they have a really dangerous infection that appears, so they don't want to use it. There's all these disincentives for the pharma companies. And, you know, pharma companies have chemical libraries with 
thousands, hundreds of thousands of molecules that they can go in any direction to any therapeutic area. So the right incentives have got to be in place. And, you know, Gunnar's talking about some things that that actually might put the right incentives in place for them to turn their R&D tour in that direction. You know, if you allow me to jump in real quick, I, I, do, I, I do give a case study in the paper uh, about the anti-CRE market, so uh, carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriae. Uh, researchers at the University of, of Pittsburgh looked at that specific market because it's a very small uh, patient population in the U.S. right now that deals with that specific bug. There are some drugs that do work a little bit against it. It, it is able to be treated to an extent. But for all intents and purposes, that market in the United States is only $289 million, of which there are several drugs in that you know, very small patient population that can work a little bit. But the problem is we know those drugs are not going to work eventually, right? So when a new drug does enter the market and it's branded, that, that company, like Bill just said, has to make that money back somehow. But why would a hospital prescribe that branded drug when they may be able to get away with using a first or second drug that may work a little bit, may work you know, enough um, instead, of, instead of using that, that highly expensive drug? Uh, and, and the pharmaceutical companies know this. And, and I think, you know, that's why they're coming together with the AMR Action Fund. That's why Carbex is doing such a great job in Boston. You know, I think the, the problem is, is a, a very uh, nuanced problem that the public just doesn't know enough about right now. Well, that's why we're doing this episode. Uh, <laughs> so our... our uh... Our uh, listeners like to be informed, but they also like to get homework. They like to know what they can do. Now, you mentioned you know, Boston is a hotbed for biotech companies, uh, so there may be some self-interest here. Um, Carbex, is this entirely privately organized or is it nonprofit? Is there a, a policy component? And for listeners who want to encourage or perhaps contribute or, um, uh, or learn more about Carbex, what, what as a policy level or as a private citizen level, what can we do as Massachusetts residents to encourage this Carbex or other programs like it? So, you know, Carbex is, is unique. Uh, it was launched by the Department of Health and Human Services and, uh, and BARDA. Uh, it's at Boston University. Uh, I did my undergrad at Boston College, so I have a hard time giving them a pat in the back, but here I am. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's really the leader in the space, in my opinion, um, you know, definitely look it up, look, look into them. But I think at the end of the day, it's really understanding when and why antibiotics are used when they need to be used. Um, and we have to be willing as a society to, again, put some of that, that cash up front, some of that investment R&D up front to prevent an issue down the road. And, you know, I, I, I compared the AMR issue to the ongoing uh, coronavirus crisis just because it's so front and center in our minds and it's, you know, it's really, uh, it, it, you know, every single person is being inconvenienced. Every single person is affected by what's going on with the coronavirus right now, just because we're, we're all living it. You know, a lot of us are in our homes. Me, uh, I've been adversely affected just because I'm in a high risk population. You know, I don't know when I'm even going to be able to rejoin society on, on the same level as some other people. So, you know, I, I think we know what the coronavirus has done to our world. I want to stop this AMR crisis before it does the same thing, uh, which uh, the World Health Organization, the uh, review of antimicrobial resistance is saying is coming. It's a matter of really getting out in front and doing it. So COVID-19 has been sort of our canary in the coal mine of warning us uh, a similar, perhaps much larger threat looms. Uh, and we can learn from 
again, the ounce of prevention and the pound of cure lesson. Um, now you mentioned, uh, you, now you yourself are becoming a, a health uh, policy uh, spokesperson. Uh, we've talked about your work with CF and now your work. Uh, you're a, a, also a student in, uh, at Dartmouth College, uh, getting your master's in both business and public health. Um, are you doing additional research in that context? And do you see uh, that school or um, your research uh, going further into AMR? Is, is this something you want to pursue beyond the paper? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have a, a huge passion in AMR. Um, you know, I, I told the story of my, uh, my friend who unfortunately passed away when the antibiotics stopped working for her. And um, you know, that, that touched me deeply to the point where, you know, that's a, a real passion of mine to make sure that does not happen again. It was a terrible, it was, it was a, one of the most horrendous things I think that's I've ever been a part of. Um, and, and I really do have a, a real passion for it. Uh, but my, my other work in school is I, I do think that the, the health industry, and that's the pharmaceutical industry, that's people who are investing in biotechs, people who are investing in pharmaceuticals, uh, and then folks who, of course, who are on the care delivery side need to really lean on patients as experts in the conditions that we are living with. Um, I think it's important uh, that we have a say in what goes on, in what treatments are developed, and how treatments are developed, and how our care is received. Um, and I saw the easiest way to doing that was to really kind of play the game. Uh, you know, healthcare is uh, uh, a world where credentials mean something, unfortunately, and maybe it is fortunate, but uh, I think that patients are have been seen as implicit benefactors of the healthcare industry, uh, and I would like to change that. I want patients to have a real strong voice beyond just the patient advocate front. You know, I want patients to be able to direct the conditions of uh, the prognosis of their conditions. That's very powerful, and no more powerful than when you are also speaking on behalf of the uh, Boomer Sison Foundation and, and CF. Um, again, perhaps it's uh, tangential to your your own study and the AMR. But uh, what can you tell us about that organization? You 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 started the show by saying you it's raised two hundred million dollars, which is extraordinary. Um, uh, CF is a uh, I don't know if if it's characterized as an, an orphan disease. Um, uh, and uh, where where have we gone from where you were first diagnosed to where we are today? And, and what's what's on the horizon for CF? So cystic fibrosis is a rare disease. Uh, there's about 30 to 35,000 patients living with CF uh, in the United States and maybe a little less than 100,000 worldwide. Um, and, and really we're going through a transformational period in the condition. Uh, you know, we now have drugs that, you know, highly specialized drugs that can treat the underlying protein dysfunction at the heart of the condition. Uh, and what that means is we're no longer just treating the symptom. You know, we're no longer just giving antibiotics to treat the infections that many of us live with. We're no longer just giving steroids to, to you know, treat the airways to, you know, uh, reduce some of the inflammation that we deal with. We're now able to actually rescue CFTR, which is the protein that is dysfunctional uh, in CF. And we're able to to rescue it to a point where, you know, most people with CF, kids born today with CF, are going to live very long, very full, very healthy lives. You know, those of us who are older and have lived through some advanced disease, you know, we still deal with this AMR issue like I do, but the future is bright. And, and the story that I always tell is that about five or six years ago when I graduated from, uh, from Boston College, my life was in, in disarray. I was you know, really struggling with my health. Uh, it was a, a challenge to go up and down a flight of stairs. Uh, but ever since I was able to start one of these, uh, you know, disease modifying CFTR modulators is what we call them. Uh, you know, my future was unlocked. I, I'm, I'm now healthy. I'm able to breathe. And, and here I am at grad school. So 
Um, you know, I, we talked a little bit about why I'm in school before, but maybe it's just because I had to figure out a way to reinvent myself uh, because uh, CF is, uh, is, is very much a livable condition now for a lot of people. I want to acknowledge you as a, a spokesperson, a scholar, uh, but also you're a podcaster. Uh, your, your story is a pretty persuasive <laughs> one, and uh, you've got a public life and a public voice. Uh, where can I, I want to give um, an opportunity to find every aspect of your research? Where can our listeners go to find more about um, uh, the Boomer Science and Foundation if perhaps they want to uh, contribute? Where can they find more about you, Gunner, uh, so, and your podcast? <laughs> Yep. So uh, you can find uh, the Boomer Esiason Foundation at esiason.org. Just my last name, esiason.org is where everything about BEF lives. You can find my website with my podcast, my blog. Uh, we have patient interviews on there. We, you know, we're all about really making sure that patients are heard, the voices are heard, uh, and that's gunnerasiason.com. Uh, and then, of course, you can follow me on Twitter. That's G17 Esiason, uh, where I spew things public health. Uh, I spew things. I'm a hockey fan. I'm, uh, I'm a student. So I've got a lot of stuff going on right now. And that's, that's really where you can find my, my daily musings. So a Bruins fan, I, I hope. I, I am not a Bruins fan. I am a Rangers <laughs> fan. I'm a Boston oh, College oh, Eagles oh, fan. I'll give you that. There we go. Much. Hold on. I think, I think your mic just went dead. I, no. uh, that, that's terrific. All right, um, uh, um, Bill. Is anything uh, we're gonna we're getting close to the end of the show? Anything else you want to ask uh, of Gunner? No, no. It's just delightful talking to Gunner. I, I've known many uh, patient advocates in my life. Uh, they're they're all wonderful people to a person, but Gunner's particularly savvy and particularly smart, and he understands the business model of the biotech companies that are bringing cures, and he is politically savvy about things. So it's always a delight to listen to him. I appreciate the kind words, Bill. And I agree. You've been a fantastic guest. Thank you very much for your time and for joining us on Hubwalk. And, and, and good luck with your studies and, and your future. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you. Okay. I'm back with Bill Smith from Pioneer Institute. Uh, Bill, I was impressed uh, beyond belief. Uh, Gunner is a fantastic spokesperson, both as a personal human being, as a patient advocate, uh, and also as a, a budding uh, health policy spokesperson. What did you think of the show? <laughs> well, I think I may have embarrassed him a little bit with my compliments, but I am extremely impressed by Gunner. He's, uh, uh, as I said, there are many patient advocates who are extremely nice people. They have very compelling stories. Uh, but they can be naive about politics and how to get things done. They can be uh, naive about the business model of the industry and how treatments come along. Gunner is none of those things. He's very on top of everything. You know, I can see him not only being a patient advocate, but a venture investor in, in uh, you know, biotechnology companies. And uh, so he's just a refreshing guy to talk to. Uh, I'm glad he was willing to do this paper for Pioneer because it's a hugely important issue and hopefully we'll get the attention of some policymakers. Yes, I hope uh, Pioneer is a, is a platform for bringing these issues to the forefront for a lot of people and our listeners. Uh, so I think it was a wonderfully successful show. So thanks again, Bill. I, you've been on the show a few times, and uh, I think this was a particularly good show. Always a pleasure. Thank you. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are three ways to support us. You can give us a five-star rating. You can offer a review and, of course, share it with friends. 
If you have ideas or comments for the show about future episodes and topics, you can reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. <laughs>